Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. That's us, Communication Mixdown. How are you? John Langer here for another edition. Well, another Anzac Day just passed, and uh, another big yawn, I can hear you say, or just an excuse for more nationalist cant. So much in the air these days. Let me read a newspaper quote from an 85-year-old Royal Air Force vet who was in the Battle of Britain. And he says Anzac Day was changed, has changed so much over the years. It used to be a small number of veterans, and now it's so well organized. Well, Anzac Day and the whole domain of commemoration, especially military commemoration, has indeed changed over the years. Commemoration has been digitized and gone online. Tom Sear is currently researching the connection between war history and memory and how these things are increasingly crossing into digital media. Good evening, Tom. Good. And, uh, well, you are I, I, uh, you do some research uh, on memory, digital memory, commemoration, and you're focused on what you've called the new era of hyper-connected commemoration. I want to start by just asking you to put, put us into some broader context, because historians, as I understand it, talk about eras of memory boom. I guess I'm suggesting that the era of digital commemoration has begun and we might be actually in a a new or a third memory boom. But, of course, they are based on much earlier earlier memory booms. And the first one and all the structures of the commemoration we know today were were constructed immediately after um, the First World War. And we call that the first memory boom. So those dealing with the loss of loved ones or their friends and mates or a society broken down, developed rituals, structures, uh, poems, sort of social technologies to deal with that. And they're the, that happened fairly quickly and they're the basis of what we call the first boom. And then sometime in the 60s and 70s, mass media, television, uh, photography became more widespread. We have what's called the second memory boom. Now, Tom, Tom, can I just interrupt you? We're, yep. we're getting a bit of... Uh your phone isn't um, connecting quite as well as it might be. We're having a bit right. of communication issues. Uh, maybe if you could just, if you're on a mobile, maybe move around or move to a different room or... Yeah, I'll try and open the windows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Look, I'll just put a little promo on and let you move to another window. Hang on a sec. All right. 
Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. And uh, we're with Tom Sear, and uh, he's doing some research on memory commemoration and the way it's been digitized over the last little while. So, Tom, you're talking about boom eras, memory booms, and... uh, You've mentioned that in the 20th century, there were, there was after the First World War, after, I suppose, the 60s and 70s, and now we're catching up today. What, what's the, what would you describe as the memory boom now? We've taken the forms of the first and the second boom and, and placed them. They're so adaptable to digital culture, particularly social media, that we're now in an era where we can personalize immediately uh, and memorialise immediately online our expressions of commemoration, either through our family history or expressions of our connection to national history through social media in particular. So we can connect ourselves very rapidly and collectively to uh, this larger experience. And we can use the internet, of course, to gain much greater levels of information, et cetera, et cetera. So um, also our... As you know, like our, our social media is itself a form of memory structure. So Facebook is a, is a timeline that enables us to place in that timeline our own participation in the commemorative experience. Hmm. And and you, you uh, as I understand it, you you've made a point about uh, this. I mean, it, it. I guess it's a historical contingency, but nine eleven occurred at, early in the century. Uh, the boom in the internet technology happened kind of at the same time. Those things are connected? Uh, essentially, yes. Um, I guess the 9-11 marks a, a break in a, in, a, in a spectacle about the way we think about war as well. So terrorism has changed the way that we think about who is impacted by war. So terrorism emerging into into Western societies and bringing warfare very directly and very personally into societies has changed the way we might think about war, but also the very the televisual spectacle of that event uh, sort of created a new type of perspective, I guess, or a screening way of understanding um, warfare, but also how people commemorate, because now we instantly commemorate something. So... Uh, You'll notice any time any event happens, particularly an act of terrorism, almost immediately after people will start to memorialise that event. So the cycle, which earlier in the century would have been much longer, is now almost immediately begin to memorialise straight away. Or a celebrity dies almost straight away, bang, we're onto Twitter talking about it. Mm. And uh, something that's uh, interesting in terms of what you're, you've been discussing is in the past, I think this relates to exactly what you're saying. In the past, commemoration meant physically being together, say, at a parade or a dawn service in the case of Anzac. Now digital culture gives people a chance to, the way you've described is personalize our commemoration when we choose, where we choose, and how we, how we go about doing it. Exactly. So even though it's the older mode of standing collectively around uh, an object or a symbolic piece of architecture, now we can collectively 
congregate around a hashtag. Um, like, lest we forget, it's frequently hashtag now as a way for us to, around the column feed of our um, timelines and, and social media as opposed to a physical object in a physical space. So we're still taking the idea of the past, which we collectively congregate, but we do it individually, and we also express ourselves not necessarily in silence, ironically, but by saying something, or you mm. might take a selfie, you know, in, like actually show your participation through taking a selfie, for example. Did you, uh, just as, a, as a, a point of interest, did you have you been following the Anzac coverage and uh, what's been going online this, this Anzac day? It's interesting, isn't it? So now social media is the subject of the commemorative story. Uh, so in 2015, we, we had uh, McIntyre from SBS making tweets um, which were not considered appropriate. And um, this year we've had someone from another media organisation saying something which others may not have considered appropriate. So you can, I guess social media, you can express yourself on Anzac Day, but also what's perhaps more interesting is the way in which people begin to use it Policing isn't quite the right word, but they begin to sort of frame what is an appropriate utterance or speech in terms of Australian days, quote unquote, online. So you're referring. Sorry, yeah. you're you're referring to that Facebook post um, that was lest we forget and had Manus and Nauru and um, Palestine and Syria. Is is that the one you're talking about? Yes, that's right. And there was a there was a good deal of response to that, including from politicians. That's right. There's an explode. Well, certainly there's an explosion online, like like literally thousands of comments um, against specific posts, with people saying it's not appropriate, it is appropriate. Um, so I guess the point is that social media is a way to it's a way to express yourself during Anzac Day, but it's also a way to police and frame. Or manage other people's values about what is the correct thing to say on Anzac Day. Mm. That's very interesting. And another thing that you mentioned, and I think this is also a very interesting uh, thing that I guess I'm aware of as well, and probably lots of other people. But the the point about uh, commemorating war, particularly, but using images and I guess sounds too, is that you've said that the the past, the present, and the future seem to be blurring together. And you've mentioned this earlier that commemoration, in a sense, starts as soon as an act, uh, I guess, a, an act of war, an act of terror, begins to happen. Um, but in a sense, the the images are are kind of grabbed from the present, from the past. Is that part of a, a, an issue of, I would call it, look, I'm going to use a fancy word, dehistoricizing these events? It's, yeah, that many historians are suggesting that that is what is going on. Like, history we would think of as in the past, something we analyse, but increasingly we're beginning to experience that past, quote-unquote, in the present. And social media sort of positions you in time very actively, and we've seen that particularly escalate over the centenary. So News Corp had its has Anzac Live, which was a group of diaries of Australian soldiers and nurses which stayed live, live Facebook, and the ABC did a piece on... Uh, where they live-tweeted Gallipoli. So I guess mainstream organisations are placing their audience in this sort of live presence. It's almost like 
Yeah, so it's almost like we are no longer distant from the past, sort of part of our contemporary... We're very present in it, as opposed to just connected to it. Yeah. Mm. The other thing I, I just maybe as a final question is, um, the 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 idea of social media. Some critics have actually said that the the social media commemoration and the act of of remembering is a as a kind of performance rather than a than something that that's real and socially connected. It's very ephemeral, and and um, that there there really isn't that kind of I guess social connection between people. How how do you how do you kind of think about this? Yeah, that's a very complex. Um, question that one. I'm not sure that we have a really definite answer, just <laughs> No, no, um, <laughs> no. Let's 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 uh, let's let, let's leave it in abeyance. But uh, <laughs> what 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 are your thoughts, very briefly, on it? Well, I guess connectivity is, is the key word. Like you, you don't. We no longer like a necessarily collective mass standing in silence around a symbolic commemorative space, but we connect ourselves to it. So we say, here am I individually, subjectively connected to that thing, or my family, he's, a, he's talking about the visual, he's a picture of my grandfather in World War One or World War Two. Here am I, it's how I am connected to this event. But we might not have a collective experience, we might have a connective experience, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, absolutely. Look, it's very, it's really interesting to to hear you hear your comments on all of these things, and clearly, this is very extremely important, not just in terms of commemoration, but a whole range of things that are changing around digital technologies. So, I want to thank you so much for being on Communication Mixdown, Tom. Great, enjoyed it. Thank you, and all the best to your for your work as well. Cheers, thank you. And that was Tom Sear. He's a researcher at the University of New South Wales. His work examines the role of digital and web-based technologies that play a part now increasingly in memorializing and commemoration of past wars. And I guess it's an appropriate topic to be talking about on this week of Anzac Day. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. You're with Communication Mixed Down, and we're talking about Anzac Day and new forms of, well, we have been talking about new forms of digital communication used to commemorate and remember. 
And if we are talking about commemoration and new forms of communication, let's turn to another type of communication, one that maybe gets a little bit overlooked in when we think about our culture as predominantly one that's visual, a visual culture. And the form of communication I'm talking about is the sensory world of sound. Lawrence English is a composer, media artist, and curator based in Brisbane. And he says that if you're conceptualizing notions of memory, you need to think very critically about the place of sound in all of that. Hello, Lawrence. Good morning. Well, in fact, good evening. <laughs> good evening. Yes, indeed. Good evening. And uh, let, let me ask a very, very straightforward question. Why sound? Why should we be more alert and knowledgeable about sound? Uh, well, look, I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, we have a number of senses. And, and I guess over the past couple of thousand years, we've really become very much attuned uh, to our eyes. You know, we have a very oculocentric view of the world. And that's understandable. You know, it's a very useful sense. But, um, you know, you can look at a burger as much as you want, but until you taste a burger, that sensory possibility is not realized. And we've all looked at burgers and thought that looks delicious, and then you bite it and it's not delicious, or the reverse. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same with sound. You know, there's this wonderful capacity uh, that we have as, as listeners to engage in the world. And the way sound functions in the world is not the same as it functions uh, in a kind of visual sense. You know, the, the horizon of vision, if you like, terminates at a point. So whether that's the sky in front of you or, you know, for me, there's a wall in front of me right now. But my horizon of audition, the, the possibility to kind of engage with sound is not uh, static like that. It's constantly fluxing. So I can hear, for example, a car driving up the street near where I live, and, and that car exists in my horizon of audition for, for you know, those moments that it passes by, but it's not there constantly. I can't return to it. So now, it's a really particular way of kind of engaging with the world that I think is important to recognize. Now, one of the things that I guess we're talking a little bit about Anzac Day and uh, commemoration and war, and one of the things you've talked about is the use of sound as a weapon. And I think this is an extremely interesting area to explore. And you use the example of the Battle of Jericho, which is described in the Bible, as a very apt place to begin. Tell us why. Well, I mean, the, it's an interesting story, uh, I think, when you consider, uh, the, the, I guess, the dual dimension of sound. You know, sound exists in two ways for us. It exists in a kind of psychological sense in terms of the capacity for sound to shape our understanding of the world and, and uh, certainly to affect the way that we um, exist in the world. And then there's a sort of physiological capacity to sound. What that story, the, the kind of trumpet of Jericho story, talks about is this idea that, you know, the army arrived and they, they blew the trumpets and the trumpets were so loud that they, you know, I guess emitted some kind of infrasonic frequency that managed to crumble the walls. But actually probably, you know, if, there, if you were going to analyse the story, what you'd probably say was, you know, if the horns were constantly being used 24 hours a day by crews of people, it would become incredibly fatiguing and a lot of anxiety for the people that existed inside those walls. And that's, I guess, part of the power of sound. It works both, uh, you know, on our minds, but it also works on our bodies. And you've gone on to describe, if that's the starting point, you've actually gone on, and again, very interestingly, talk about a bunch of developments that occurred during the Second World War and after, which basically was were using sound as a weapon. Yeah, I mean, there is a long 
tradition. I think if if we are talking about Anzac Day, I mean, when you go back to that, you know, the notion of the Great War, the kind of industrialization of uh, the battlefield uh, and the capacity of uh, the physical infrasonic sound of some of the very large cannons that were used, and even the idea of a tank, you know, as this kind of sort of strange, uh, you know, beast of the battlefield, they had very particular sonic characteristics. And I think uh, it's very interesting. There's not a great deal of documentation around um, the response of soldiers, uh, even in the Second World War. There's a few uh, examples in the Imperial War Museum where people talk, talk directly about their kind of interfacing with sound. But obviously across the 20th century, there was this huge um, shift in the way that sound particip- was, was sort of the partic- part of the participation in, in warfare. And I mean, it's interesting. I, I was just in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm working on a project which is documenting the civil defence sirens all across Los Angeles. So, during the after the first or the sorry the Second World War, during that period of the Cold War, a lot of American cities put in these civil defence sirens that were, you know, essentially nuclear uh, war sirens, and um, it they last rang in 1985. So it's been quite a long time. I mean, it's interesting to return now. I mean, politically, there's obviously a big shift going on, and, and this idea of the, the nuclear question or nuclear concern is suddenly on the table again, which is a really interesting twist, um, to, uh, I think, to be looking at them now. But what I find really interesting about it is there's this idea of them being civil defence uh, mechanisms, whereas I think now we've seen the shift in the last sort of probably 20 years, towards sound being used uh, in a kind of way of civil assault through something like the LRAD, the long-range acoustic device, which is a, a kind of crowd control device. Mm. And there are a no- number of other situations in which sound is used uh, for interrogation and a whole, a whole range of other things, really, um, where its implication is, is not um, around defence, uh, but it's around uh, attack, assault. Right. And uh, something more, much more recent that you've discussed is the use of sound in war, and I suppose in conflict zones, and particularly the, around the question of the way drones are used. And you've described this as a new form of sonic terror. And uh, apparently there was a, a study that was done at Stanford University called Living Under Drones, where they interviewed people. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that particular study that Stanford undertook was probably the first major study into the, I guess, the affect of something like um, the persistent threat or possible threat of, of um, you know, being killed, essentially. You know, you have these communities living in places like Ruzistan, and it's also obviously in places like Syria, um, these areas that we know that are sort of heavy conflict zones, you know, you look at the development of the, the drone program in North America in the last um, decade, and it's incredible, the increase in the number of strikes. There's a fantastic um, text at the moment, a book that's been published called The Drone Memos, which basically outlines the development of the drone program under the Obama administration and how radically that changed. I mean, it was interesting, even The Onion had a little joke about it when Obama was leaving. They said, you know, one of these reapers, the, the, the kind of drones that that carrying missiles as well, had kind of come to the White House to say goodbye to him, you mm. know, for the pet that he developed. So, I mean, it's it's a really interesting thing. And um, the thing is the sound of these uh, devices, the constant presence of that sound, it has a really powerful aspect for people because they recognize what it potentially means. And to be in a situation where you're out with your, your, your family or that your kids are playing outside, whatever the case might be, must be a huge burden for people to bear 
that just happen to be unfortunate enough to live in one of these areas where there is uh, some kind of potential terrorist threat or, um, you know, it's an area of, of, of surveillance interest. Um, so it's very interesting that the study outlines a lot of the kind of psychological impacts uh, on people. And you've got to think that's a, it's a huge weight to bear, especially for people that don't necessarily, like young people that don't necessarily mm. understand what's happening. Mm. And your prediction, I look, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, finally, perhaps your prediction, you're, I think you're suggesting that sound and the way you've been talking now, sound and I would call it sonic weaponization is really in its infancy and we can probably be expecting more in the future. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, we are only just, I mean, there's some amazing, look, the thing is at the other end, there's this amazing research uh, going on, like, you know, Maya Sound, one of the great sort of sound system developers in in uh, San Francisco, has developed a special array of very low-frequency um, speakers that can put out incredible amounts of energy that's being used by NASA to test their uh, satellite re-entry possibilities. Rather than having to send them up in the air, they can do it on the ground. So we're coming to understand the power of sound, and I think with that, there'll be these incredible developments in terms of the the possibilities for communication, because in fact, in fact, the long-range acoustic device was developed for maritime communication initially, but they just realised that if they um, marketed to police departments, they'd sell a lot more of them. Mm. And actually, all of our police departments on the east coast, for example, have LRADs. We, you know, to to the credit of the police departments here, we don't use them for crowd control. We use them for situations of siege. I had a fantastic interaction with the Queensland Police about uh, how they use their LRADs here. Um, so. But it's, you know, in stark contrast, I guess, to how they're being used in, in North America, where there has already been a number of cases of litigation against uh, different cities and authorities who used the LRADs in ways that actually did cause physical harm to the mm. people that were in the general vicinity. So I think we are only at the very start. In the same way that if you look at those Boston Dynamics videos of those robots that they're developing, <laughs> we're in the early days of a whole new world. Mm. Look, we'll have to definitely catch up with you again, uh, Lawrence, because it sounds well, both interesting and also horrifying at the same time. So, <laughs> the beauty of the world right there. <laughs> so uh, I want to thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown. My pleasure. Thank you. And I was talking there with Brisbane-based composer, media artist, and uh, consul- um, curator. And he works in the area of the politics of perception and memory with a particular interest, as you heard, in the role of sound. Well, that's it for us. We are Communication Mixdown.